Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello. There are around 450,000 people with the diagnosis of dementia in the UK, and if we include those with some form of cognitive impairment, the numbers are probably more than double that. When you consider that on average, people with dementia have two or more comorbidities, it is sadly no surprise that people with dementia spend a lot of time in and around hospitals, as both inpatients and outpatients. Providing respectful care is therefore very important. I'm joined today by Naomi Gallant and Emily Oliver, who have focused their research on how the NHS can improve care for people with dementia while in hospital. Both are clinical doctoral research fellows funded by National Institute of Health Research's Collaborations for Leadership in Applied Health Research and Care, working in collaborative partnership with the University of Southampton and the surrounding NHS organisations in the Wessex area. Naomi Gallant is an occupational therapist in the final year of her PhD. Emily Oliver is a mental health nurse, also in the final year of her PhD. A warm welcome to you both. Shall we start with your research questions, Emily? Yeah, so my research is looking at um, the contextual factors of the acute care ward and how that affects relational care between nursing staff and patients with dementia. So um, we know from lots of reports that uh, relational care isn't very good in hospital we're looking at the francis report um so my research is looking at why that is so i uh, did a qualitative research study so i did observations of care and then i did interviews with staff just to look at what was happening on the ward and a lot of the reports the nurses talk about not having enough time and then that's sort of accepted and i wanted to understand why what are they doing instead what's their priority so um yeah i did it was an ethnographic study Okay. And uh, Naomi? Hi. Yeah, so my research is also looking at dementia care in hospitals, but particularly focusing on meal times. So again, from the research that's already been done, uh, we know that people with dementia in hospitals will often lose weight when they go into hospital, uh, various reasons for that. We also know that lots of intervention studies um, show that actually quite poor results um, there's not many interventions that you'd say, oh yeah, that works, that get people to eat. So what I really wanted to know was um, what influences whether people eat or drink or not, um, people with dementia, and also how are they experiencing mealtimes, because there's not really a lot out there um, really looking at how people with dementia perceive what's going on around them. Um, So I did a two-phase study. The first one was observational, um, using the dementia care mapping tool, which is um, from Bradford University. And that's the sort of wellbeing score. So I did observations for three hours over mealtimes, before, during and after, and measured their wellbeing and engagement levels at that time. And then alongside that, I did qualitative field notes. So I have like a mixed methods for the first bit and then my second phase is interviewing staff so I did semi-structured interviews Um, and at the moment I'm working on bringing all those results together. (laughs) Yeah because as we said in the introduction your final year PhD. Very nearly there. (laughs) 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 So Emily um, you were involved in relational care so did you mainly talk to staff members and like you said nurses who say they didn't have enough time? Yeah. 
is that um, did you have any contact with patients? Were you trying to link up the two or was it mainly staff? So during the observations, I spoke to patients, just spoke about the care that they had. And then that was more of an informal chat because what I found was when you, if you tried doing interviews with people with dementia on acute hospital ward, it was so difficult to find a space, um, to do it at a right time. So it was just easier to have those informal chats um, during, during the observations. We uh, had a podcast about ethics a few weeks ago oh, and yeah. I just wondered how that fits in, like informal chats with patients in hospitals and surroundings, how does that fit with the ethics yeah. of your project? So we've had quite a few um, conversations about this and I thought actually because we were healthcare professionals, the ethics committee were actually quite lenient with what we did I don't know if you found that as well because a lot of the um, problems are usually around consent and capacity Mm -hmm. and actually they understood that because we are healthcare professionals we're making those decisions all the time so yeah I think they were they were quite lenient weren't they really yeah Yeah. because your background is uh, occupational so I'm a mental health nurse (laughs) 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 so almost (laughs) Naomi's an occupational Um, nurse okay and do you think that's helped both of you actually because you were the um, occupational therapist your backgrounds have helped inform your research a lot you know you're not going straight from undergrad into Mm. a um, PhD you've got some training behind you do you yeah. think that's helped definitely f- for me I feel like my clinical work that I did before I started the PhD really shaped where my passion was mm-hmm. and where I wanted to do the research um, and particularly so again mine's around meal times and I was in a dementia setting that I worked in I was asked as an occupational therapist to do mealtime assessments but there's no like um evidence out there to say that's what occupational therapists do so I was quite that sort of got me thinking about what research is out there um so yeah I definitely say that my the clinical side shaped how I got to it but also doing the research one of the things I'm kind of discussing in my thesis is how as an occupational therapist I'm interpreting the results because obviously as a health professional in the hospital setting you might see things that someone who came I don't know with a psychology degree or something um or a researcher pure researcher came in they might actually view what's happening in a different way so it's quite interesting Mm. um what have you found the main findings of your study to be so it's so broad that's um, I'd say (laughs) if I was to sum it up in one sentence it would be that nursing staff don't have any control over their work so they're dictated to by staff they're dictated to by time rituals they're dictated to by the organization by um you know uh, local authority who are governing the hospital by policy so actually we talk about nursing autonomy but they haven't got any and that's where they can't make decisions about whether they would rather um fill out you know a documentation or whether they would rather provide relational care which they might seem as more important but actually because of all these other things they have no control over they can't justify that Mm. so it's a lot about um I would suggest my recommendations would be that we need to look at how we can increase nursing autonomy and give them more decision making and and sort of work with the team so that they would listen to nursing staff more Mm. As your project obviously was sort of at the ground level talking to staff and patients, mm. For, with the findings of your PhD, could you go higher up the chain? I mean, would you like to do that? Yeah, I think so. I think policy. 
I don't think the changes that I would suggest would happen at a ward level. I think it would be mm. the whole system that would need to change and the whole culture of the organisation. And, you know, that isn't really new. I mean, mm. I think a lot of people know that, but actually... For specifically for relational care and, and and like timing on the wards I think that's where my research findings fit in and just to be totally clear from my basic biology <laughs> background relational care actually means how the nurses relate to the patients yeah so it's interesting my study actually was called was the focus was compassionate care mm-hmm. um, and everyone knows what compassion is or you think but actually if you try and make it tangible it's so difficult to find out what compassion is and so then I had to sort of find a a meaning of compassion and I I sort of dug down and found relational care so I used and this is going to be a bit out there now but Nolan's senses framework um, which focuses on relational care so we have Kitwood which is based on patient-centered care Mm. and then relational care is looking at the staff and the carer and the person with dementia. This is also my basic background, but I know there was the very simple thing that doctors started to do where when they introduce themselves to patients, they say, hi, my name is. Have you found really simple things like that can really make a difference? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I don't think it's difficult because I am a nurse myself. I find it hard to sort of blame nursing staff. And that's why I wanted to do my research. I don't blame nursing staff at all. I just think the environment that they're in doesn't allow them to or they get so consumed by all their tasks that they're unable to provide that care so yeah those little things and just taking a step back you know they're so consumed by the task just taking five minutes out for themselves to reset and then go back in with a fresh mind and and talk to the patients and I guess be more human or personable with it instead of task oriented yeah yeah And what were the main findings of your study? <laughs> so again, it was very broad. I had a huge <laughs> amount of data. Um, but And it's really hard to... You have to kind of just keep going back to that research question, which for mm. me was what's influencing, what's influencing engagement and what how are they experiencing it? Um, but I think, for me, the key thing, again, is relating to that system the system level um, and there's a real pull from talking to the um, staff in the hospital there's this real pull between wanting to give that relational care you know knowing the patients knowing what they like knowing their routines and being able to accommodate that um, and what actually the restrictions and the rules that the system put on to the care and there seems to be a real tension between the two and particularly for individualized care at meal times and so as a result you're seeing people not eating but it could be something as simple as them not um, recognizing the food that's put in front of them because it's not normal to them or it could you know it can be really simple things um so definitely for me as well that system versus individualized relational person-centered whatever care you want to call it um but also the other thing for me as an occupational therapist i guess with my lens there is about making meals meaningful in hospitals so at the moment it's another one of those tasks that needs to be ticked off and that's right from the stage of ordering the food in the menus how the food selection happens right through to people actually eating and finishing their meals um so actually um I've been trying to relate it to a model which is called the person environment occupation fit so really it's looking at how the needs of the person and those cognitive barriers that are there 
um, versus the environment that they're in, and that includes the staff attitudes, the staff skills, the system and the pressures, versus the occupation itself. So how much is it actually a real meal time? How much does it look and feel um, like a meal time? And the closer those things get together to fit together, the bigger the outcome of actually engaging in the food will be. So for an example might be um, if someone with dementia, actually I could use an example from my clinical practice. Um, I was trying to encourage a lady to sit up at the table for lunch, but um, she had dementia and she kept telling me it wasn't lunchtime. <laughs> she didn't believe me and on top of that she had um, paranoia as well. And as a staff member she just didn't believe me that it was lunchtime until she saw other people sitting at the table eating their lunch and she said, oh, okay. And then she went up and then she ate her lunch really well. So it's that kind of, that's where the needs of the person fitted with the occupation itself and the environment allowed for it by having that space for them. Um, so yeah, I think the systems versus person-centred and the making mealtimes meaningful would be my key outcomes. I mentioned in the introduction that lots of people with dementia also have comorbidities now. Mm. Does that also, for want of a better phrase, feed into <laughs> mealtimes? So, you know, diabetes or, you know, specific food that they would have to eat, I mean, that yeah. must form part of it as well definitely i think that's a big part of it and thinking about the physical sort of elements of mm. aging as well is very common alongside the dementia so people's actual physical ability to eat um, and swallow can be infected as well um but one of the things that came out in the interviews was very much how um sometimes people don't understand what they're being given because it's different to what so they may be on a sort of texture modified diet where the food doesn't look the same as the person next to them but it is the same meal it's just been pureed up or something so yeah that's definitely comes into it do you because this is obviously in hospitals mm. um do they have shared meal times with their families and things do you encourage that kind of behavior to make them feel more comfortable mm. in the hospital environment um yeah i would encourage it yeah okay. <laughs> um but yeah it's that's another big thing. I mean, like I say, the findings are so broad, so it could just go on and on and on. But yeah, involvement of families um, is a really big, big part of um, making the mealtime familiar as well. So family members um, who they recognise will be there as part of it, but also they know the person, they know what they like, they know what time they eat what normally. So yeah, I um, would definitely encourage but whether the system allows for that is another thing so you know with protected meal times there was real confusion among the staff as to whether that included visitors or not there's a real even within a small sort of um sample group in just two hospitals there was such a confusion about what protected meal times means so yeah, I think it goes back to, again, the system and clarifying those things. And Emily, did you do any work with families? Because obviously relational care in your context related to staff and patients, yeah. but I guess it could also mean families as well. Did you also work with families? Yeah, I mean, doing the observation, so I did them um, at all parts of the day and there were relatives there and I would sort of inform them about the study and, and the feedback I got from them. I didn't specifically interview carers. I wanted to find out what the impact was for the staff mm. but I mean yeah I think involving the carers would be really good. Mm. Okay and um, how will you be using your research going forwards Emily? 
Oh, <laughs> put me on the spot. Um, so I think I'm currently working with Dementia UK. Um, so I help um, or support nurses who support carers for people with dementia. And uh, they're in a range of different settings, so um, care homes, hospices, hospitals. So I think I can influence the way they are supporting those carers by looking at the system and looking at what I've learned. And and I worked with um, Professor Jackie Bridges at the University of Southampton. She uh, did a, a research study creating learning environments for compassionate care. So she's designed an intervention and I think a lot of my research could help her to implement that intervention. So looking at how the staff would use it and what would be feasible for them. I think I think, I think that's one of the problems that you said, that there's lots of interventions out there, but they don't yeah. take into consideration any contextual factors of the ward. So actually nurses just see them as another thing that they have to do and it's just not feasible. So I think, yeah. That's actually an interesting point about implementation because I guess your PhD projects don't really have a budget at the end or for anything like implementing it's you just have your findings and then Mm. you have to find someone who is interested in them to take them forwards have you got where are you going with your research Um, well that's where I actually think so both me and Emily are doing clinical academic um, PhDs so we've been working clinically as well and so for me um, what's been really nice is actually being able to implement some of the changes in my clinical role. Um, so I'm at, currently doing a dementia specialist role at a hospital, a community hospital, um, and I've already been able to use my PhD in sort of training staff, um, you know, sharing with the nutrition group hospital for making changes across the hospital, um, encouraging small changes like getting people up at the table for meal times. Um, things like that so yeah and in my next clinical role I'm going to be taking on more of a team lead so hopefully I'll be able to have a bit more influence in that so the clinical academic role definitely gives you that opportunity that perhaps doing a straight PhD doesn't um but yeah I guess it's just finding people who are interested and want to take it to a wider audience really um but there's so I think for both of us there's so much potential for future research from what it's just pinpointing exactly how you make a project out of what we've found really (laughs) get some publications yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) so do you have any advice to give other early career researchers who plan to deliver studies in a hospital settings in a hospital setting did you have any barriers i mean obviously you've sort of touched on that a bit with the way the system is already set up you know you're walking into something that may not be necessarily it's not necessarily it's not receptive it's that you can't change it from the ground up in a way Mm. but do you have any advice I think mine would be um so thinking about ethics again and it's going to sound a bit controversial but try as hard as you can not to get need written consent because I had to get written consent from Mm. both the people of dementia and their carers and um, what I found was people would be more than happy to agree to research but then as soon as you ask them to sign something that lifted a barrier and they didn't want to and that was a really big barrier for me yeah and also for for carers or for family members who needed to sign like a consultee um, consent form if they didn't live close to the hospital or they didn't visit there was no way so there was quite a a large sample of people that I was missing just because of that so Mm -hmm. that would be my 
and we always said as well didn't we get your ethics in as soon as you can <laughs> because you we completely underestimated how long that yeah. would take <laughs> I've heard that <laughs> have you got any um, I would just say in a sort of practical sense um, if you're going to be researching in a hospital find a link person in that hospital to help mm-hmm. so I you know, like, oh, my PhD project basically to the dementia nurses at the hospital that I was, the two hospitals that I was in, because they, without them, I just wouldn't have been able to recruit so easily. Um, and also the nutrition nurse at one of the hospitals, because um, recruitment can, I, I think, can be quite a challenge yeah. if you're not, I think you were working on the ward that you were doing your research on. I was in the hospital, so yeah. I didn't have to build those barriers already so um relationships even yeah so i think that's a lot of the groundwork isn't it yeah whereas i kind of went into hospitals that didn't know who i was and i was just like hey (laughs) yeah so having those linked people was just so invaluable Mm. i actually wanted to come back to something you said about nutrition Mm. and i heard something on the radio about how um medics don't actually have any mandatory nutritional training Mm. And I just wondered if you had any comments on that (laughs) (laughs) and how important you think nutrition is. Um, Oh, obviously nutrition is is the most important thing for us, really, Um, especially with older people. You know, it could go into the risk of not being nourished as you should be. But um, I think for me, it's more about actually, I think hospitals are very good at at making sure people are getting nutrition in the sense that they have food and fluid charts you know there's a lot of things there which are trying to happen to make sure people aren't malnourished for me what I found are the barriers are actually maybe the staff training about how to deal with people with dementia and how to communicate properly with them so you know things like um I don't know about medics I don't think they're particularly involved in the meal times and any sort of nutritional care I think then goes to the dietitians and it's just well I might be making a bit of a blanket statement here but that's my experience um but you know the healthcare assistants and the nurses even as simple as helping people make their choices of what they're going to eat actually it's quite a skilled job to get that out of someone with dementia it's not just as easy as asking you or me what do you want for dinner tonight and you know here's the options so I think it's much more about enabling staff to communicate properly than necessarily having nutritional uh, knowledge. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, so interesting for me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to both of you for coming in. Um, uh, I believe you're both on Twitter, are you? Yeah. So if anyone has any questions, follow-up questions, they can tweet either of you and uh, your... Twitter addresses are in your profiles that we will put up on the website. So finally, please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues about it. Thank you. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.